Good to see you. It's good to be in Norfolk, Nebraska. You know, I I go to Norfolk, Virginia, and they, you know, they, so I'm always arguing with them on how to say it, and and, uh, they say I mess it up, so anyway. It's good to be with you. Welcome from, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, the land of the Cardinals, and the Arch, and riots. That's what we're known for now. Cardinals, the arch, and riots. So what a renown we have. You know, we've come a long way. But anyway, it's great to be here. Uh, um, hey, thank you for that. Your songs will just really kind of tie in with my message this morning, so I appreciate that. Thank you. We didn't really talk at all about that. But I love that when I'm sitting there and I'm going, oh, okay, Holy Spirit, you just, you're really setting things up. You know, and just worship, and it's all about what I'm going to preach. And at times I feel like I could, we could just, you know, sing those songs and really listen to the lyrics and what God's saying and go home. Amen. But we're not going to do that. But anyway, go with me, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to begin. Um, and I, I do appreciate the opportunity for... Pastor Mike and Kathy to give me to speak to you and I'm not going to go into how long we've known each other and all the messes that we've caused together and anyway all the trouble yeah it was always was my fault so at least that's his point of view you know we are in a very peculiar day you know, we say some things, and sometimes it sounds like the kind of just the Christian idioms. You know, we say there's a peculiar day and all that, but we really are. We, we are in a, what I've been calling a major shift in the world, not just in America, but in the world. Do you sense that? Don't you just feel that we're, things are changing? And if the world is changing, we need to be changing. We should be changing just for the very fact that we have the life of God on the inside of us. That is creative. You know, I I think about, sometimes I think about things that really, when I begin to ponder them deeper, they just kind of blow my mind. But do you know in the beginning when God said that creative power is still in action today? It says that he that the worlds are sustained by the word of his power. Do you realize that if God's word ceased, guess what? Everything would be gone. The, the air that we breathe is there. Why? Because the word of God is sustaining it. All creation and its systems and principles keep bearing forth. Why? Because they're sustained by the power of the word of God. And it's creative. God is constantly, his power is creating, it's creating, it's creating. Why? Because he's a, what? Creator. And for us to think that everything is done that can be done. I can remember hearing back in the 1920s, there was a senator who submitted a bill to do away with the Department of Patent because everything that can be invented was invented. Just think of how that would have messed Al Gore and the Internet up. 
well, <laughs> I lost control there for a minute. But just think about that, you know, the ludicrous of that. And, and to think that's man. And uh, Sandy, it's good to see you. Well, I didn't see you before. I thought you were, I thought you backslid or something. Well, you did that anyway, and you're still here. Okay. So we need to understand the, the, the things that God is doing. And I, one of the things that we do is sometimes we let the, the essentials, the, the, the basics slip from our lives. And it's those things that empower us many times to understand what Jesus is doing. When we look at, a, at his word and, and, and we're going to look at some things this morning. We're going to look at four encounters that Jesus had that really are a picture of, of, of what is his life and his power and what he's doing today. We're in a season right now, which is historically in the church, has been called Easter Tide. Easter Tide is the 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus to the outpouring in the upper room. Some measure it by 40 days to the ascension, most scholars, theologian, more prevalent in our church history as Eastertide is the 50 days from the resurrection to the outpouring in the upper room. So we are in the season of Eastertide. Okay? And this is the account that we're looking at because the, what we're going to look at from the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John is, is, is four encounters that the either individuals or groups had with Jesus during this Eastertide time. And in Luke 24 is where we're going to begin. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to um, necessarily read uh, every aspect of these, but we're going to hit the highlights. And so Luke 24, beginning of verse 13, it said that very day, two of them, two of the, would have been the, would have been the disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, were going to a village of Emmaus. Now Emmaus is about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And they were walking and they were talking about things that had happened. And what were the things that were happening? It was about the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of a sudden Jesus comes alongside and starts to walk with them. They said, but they're, but verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So you can tell from this what their conversation was. It was not a very hopeful conversation. All right? They looked sad. And one of them, Cleopas, said, don't you know what's going on? Haven't you heard? And he said, what? And he said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. And all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Can you just hear this, this hopelessness in their voice? They look sad. We had really hoped that he was the one. Then it says in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what did Jesus do? Here he was these two guys who were just steeped in hopelessness, as were many others. 
really thought that it was going to happen this way. We really thought that Jesus was the one. We really thought that this man, this prophet, this, he was going to be our, our savior. He was going to be the one that was going to remove us from the tyranny of Rome and all these things. And, it was a, and, and so what Jesus do? He comes alongside him and starts walking with him. And he really starts telling them his story. Because, my friends, that's what the Old Testament is about. What we call the Old Testament today is really the story of Jesus. And that's what Moses and the prophets was all about. It's Jesus. There's this parallel between Moses and Jesus. Moses comes out of Egypt and and he goes through the Red Sea, and then they go into the wilderness for 40 days, and then he goes to Mount Sinai, and, re, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, goes to Mount Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments and comes down and, and gives them the Word of God. And here's the parallel of Jesus. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus out of Egypt after they, they left from the tyranny of, uh, you know, of Herod. And so Jesus comes back, and what happens? He comes back from from Egypt, he grows up, he goes what? He goes to the Jordan, he gets baptized, he goes through the water. Then what happens? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And then from the wilderness, he comes in 40 days, what happens? He goes to the mountain and gives this, you know, receive this. And not only gets the word, he is the word. So he goes to the mountain and gives the word. He becomes the word. He is the word. You see the parallel there? Jesus is the Old Testament. So he begins to tell them his story. And it said that they got to Emmaus and Jesus was going to keep going and they beckoned him to come in and stay with them. And he sat down and he broke bread. They had communion. And in communion he revealed himself. And their eyes were opened and they said, Did not our heart burn within us? See what happens when, when your life becomes connected with the story of Jesus. What happened? Hopelessness flees. That's the power of a story. That's the power of your story. That's what you have to give to others who are struggling in hopelessness is your story. Your story that is connected to the story of Jesus. Your story that maybe maybe people don't like, but they cannot negate your story. Because why? It's your story. You say, well, I don't believe you. But it's my story. And my story is one who, when I was in hopelessness, drug addicted, alcohol addicted, Jesus showed up. And my heart began to burn. And my heart has been inflamed for 37 years. Why? Because Jesus is still my story. My story is one who was hopeless and downtrodden and thought all, you know, I kind of felt like I was, I was living in, you know, Ecclesiastes. Everything's futile. Nothing matters. But all of a sudden, what my story became connected with Jesus' story. And life became real. Hope was restored. Purpose came. 
And see, that's what you and I have, the power of your story. The greatest thing that you can give somebody is your story. It's your story. And I found that as I tell my story to people, it, it, it pulls them in. And they forget all their religious ideologies and maybe even some of their resistance. Even as I sit and talk with agnostics and atheists, and I begin to tell them my story, all of a sudden what happens? They're pulled into my story. And maybe just a little, sometimes a lot. What happens? Their heart begins to open up. Why? Because they cannot deny my story. So I think today, there's many people looking for a story. People are looking to hear. They really are. What? Because everything else, nothing else is working. See, we, we, we get these, all these preconceived ideas. We talk about evangelism. And we think, of, you know, we get this picture door to door. and Think about, you know, the Mormons coming to my door, or the Jehovah's Witness coming to my door, and, or, you know, handing out tracts. And we get a, but one of the greatest evangelistic gifts that you have is your story. See, I tell my story at Starbucks. I tell my story at the gas station standing next to the other individual pumping their gas. I tell my story at, at, you know, at dinner with a stranger, you know, that's happened to come across my path. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not kidding you. People are looking for a story. They want to hear a story. And that's what Jesus used was the power of his story. Let's move on. Let's go to let's go to John chapter twenty. And I'll tell you while you're turning there, I'll, I'll say this: you have to realize something. What the devil is really after? You know what the devil's really after is your story, because it's so powerful. That's the reason he wants to mess up our lives. Why? Because our lives are our story. So that's why he he tries to move in such ways that. That, the, that instead of the, the chapters of our book, our life, our story that keep glorifying God is the one of failure, one of loss, and one of... See, he wants to get to your story. Why? Because the devil knows how powerful our story is. So don't let the devil be the author of your story. Let Jesus be the author of your story. John chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 19. And on the evening of that day, the first day, this was the day of resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. I find that kind of humorous. They locked themselves away in fear of what? Rome? No, in fear of the Jews. Sometimes religious people are scary. Y'all are... See the looks I'm getting right now. No, I'm just kidding. Really, sometimes, you know, I just found it interesting. They locked themselves and protected themselves from what? 
You know, sometimes the most contentious, the people that will be the most adversarial, I find, is religious people. And I'm not just talking about mainline doctors. I'm talking about their born-again, spirit-filled religious people. Okay? So they were locked away, hiding out. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Well, how is the Father? How did the Father send Jesus? You know, we, we talk about John 3 16. You know, that's the end zone scripture. You know, you always see through the uprights, John 3.16. But what about John 3.17? Because John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them. The breath of God, the life of God. We see two other times that God breathed. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is where God breathed into the nostrils of, Ab- or of Adam and life came. And then we see in Ezekiel 37 the dry bones. What? The breath, he breathed them. The life came. So Jesus breathed on them. Why? He was given the essence of the life of God, the power of the life of God. He was empowering them. This is different than the outpouring that we see in in the book of Acts. But this was the creative life of God that he breathed onto them. And then immediately he says something. What does he say? As you go and forgive others, they will be forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness, it will be withheld from them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus empowers them, breathes alive, the creative life of God. And the first thing he talks to them about is forgiveness. But again, I go to John 3, 17. For as God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through the world, but in order that, uh, uh, that the world might be saved through them. See, I find... That the thing that many people struggle with is the element of forgiveness. And Jesus was, in, was getting ready to commission this group of individuals, and really us, the New Testament church, to commission them and empower them, and he empowered us to be first and foremost agents of forgiveness. Let me tell you a story. The church that I attend, that we're a part of, we just recently, actually this message was a part of it. We did a series on Jesus' invitation. and During this series, the pastor had three individuals that um, he interviewed. One man was background of drugs, alcohol, been in in uh, five different prisons in five different states, not counting a lot of county jails. I mean, his life was a mess. I mean, he was... Anyway. So uh, Jesus came and actually encountered him, met him in the cell of a prison in North Carolina. 
and completely changed his life. The other was an, uh, a couple who um, marriage was on the brink of divorce. In fact, she was she had the papers, and and the husband had an encounter with God, with Jesus. And through that encounter, things began to change, and she began to see a change in him, an undeniable change in how that that encounter saved their marriage. And the third individual that he interviewed was a lady in her church who had led a lesbian lifestyle for 25 years and how she had come to Christ and and, uh, the the power of all that and the healing. But, But I spoke about forgiveness, about how sometimes people need somebody to come and say, you know what? God forgives you. God forgives you. It's not that it's not that we are the forgiving, but we become the agents of forgiveness to say, God forgives you. And she came up to me after that service that night. It was on a I was doing a Saturday night Sunday morning. She was there that Saturday night. She came up and she gave me this big old bear hug and was she was weeping. And she said, I wished 25 years ago someone would have told me that God forgives me for the way I've lived or the way I was living. But here was her experience in the church. She knew she needed to make a change. So she set up an appointment went and met a pastor. And she went in and she said that, That pastor laid his hands on me, prayed for me, and then showed me the door and told me I couldn't stay there because of the lifestyle I've been in. See, Jesus did not commission us to the ministry of condemnation. And as I encounter people, whether it's agnostics, atheists, people in the homosexual lifestyle, Oh, that they can they can readily tell me what we're against as Christians, but they can't tell me what we're for. We've done a dismal job, my friends, in showing the world what we're for. And Jesus was here and he was commissioning and he was he was showing them what their ministry was going to be. Their ministry was going to be one of bringing the power of forgiveness to the world. Because if the world does not know that they can be forgiven, then they will never change and be removed from the burden of guilt and shame. See, she had she had been in church, she had been, but she was still carrying the shame. And when I spoke that night about God forgives you, He forgives you. Happen. The shame, because see, the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong. There's something wrong with me. And there are too many people, too many Christians living their lives that are still bearing the weight of shame. 
And God has empowered us to be the voices, the hands and the feet of bringing forgiveness and watching people get set free. Amen? Let's go on a little bit further. John 24. Or excuse me, John 20, 24. Now Thomas, see, they came and Thomas wasn't in the room with them all. And so Jesus comes and shows him. And they go and they tell Thomas, hey, you know, Jesus showed up. And, and Thomas says, well, unless I see his hands, put my fingers in his nail print hands and put my, thrust my hand inside, I'm not going to believe. And, and so Jesus shows up eight days later. And he says, Thomas, here's, here's my hands, here's my side. And Thomas is my Lord and my God. Now we read that, and if we don't really understand what he's saying, we can pass right over it. He says, my Lord and my God. That word my Lord in the Greek is literally my resurrected Lord and my God. What happened? The revelation, the realization, the assurance that Jesus was the resurrected Messiah had come. And Jesus said, blessed are you, but blessed. He said, that's good, Thomas, but blessed are those who don't have to see my hands and, 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 and declare he is the resurrected king. So throughout the annals of history, Thomas has bared a bad rap because everybody knows him as Doubting Thomas. But you know, that's not Thomas's end. You know what Thomas's end is? Thomas went on to take the gospel into India and preach the gospel in India. And because of Thomas, even today, you can take back the root of the vein of Christianity throughout India back to Thomas. That was Thomas's end. And what Jesus was showing this through is that what? Thomas had a brilliant ending. That's Jesus' desire for us today, is to have a brilliant ending. See, because it's not over yet, folks. Our endeavors are not over yet. See, <laughs> Back to the, you know, our life is like a story, you know. And sometimes what happens is people come into your life and they, 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 they enter your story in this chapter of your story and they want to judge the whole book by this chapter that they're entering your life. But this is just a chapter. There are many more chapters yet to be written. I don't know, but there have been chapters in my life that have been very dim and dark. There have been chapters in my life where I've been at places of hopelessness. There's been places of, at times in my life where I've, there's a chapter on doubt. But that's not the end of my story. There's a brilliant ending yet. Ecclesiastes says the end of a matter is better than the beginning. So you may be at a place of struggle, but guess what? It's not the end yet. You can have a brilliant ending. That's great news. That's great news. I mean, that's, I, I, you know, you, when you run into people, coworkers or whatever, and you say, oh, this is, you know. no, guess what? Tell them this. It's not the end. 
you can have a brilliant ending. See, people may want to put a moniker on you of what they knew you from the past. But guess what? That's how, not how you're going to be known at the end. If you pursue all that God has for you to do. To stay focused on Christ. Because that's what Thomas did. But Jesus said to him, he said, you are my resurrected Lord. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you see me? Or blessed are those who have not seen. And then he goes on to say, Jesus did many other signs. That by believing you may have life in his name. What, is, what was he saying? That because Thomas began to believe, his story changed, his life changed. So no matter where you've been, no matter where you're at, you can change your ending. And you can help people change their ending. Okay? A lot of people need a different ending. Sometimes people get settled with ending their book of their life way too early. And all these chapters that I believe that God has laid out, I believe that the, Psalms 31.15 says, my times are in his hands. Meaning what? That God has a book of our life that begins in the beginning with certain uh, an introduction and then we live out the chapters and as we live out those chapters, it is scribed, it is chronicled. But if we're not careful, there are all these intended chapters for God to have that are still blank that he's waiting for us to live out so that they can be chronicled of the great things and the understandings and the insights and the encounters with God. Life is interesting. Life is really a series. In Ecclesiastes, I think it's 27, 29 times that Ecclesiastes 3 talks about 29 different times. There's a time for this and a time for that. Time to sow and a time to reap. All of this, see our life is a series of times and seasons. And we grow in those. And things change. Where we get in trouble is when we don't want to change. When we become like that senator back in the 1920s that thought everything that was to be was to be. It had already been done. But it's not. There's so much more that God wants to do with us and through us and for us. We have a series called Blessed right now. This is the blessed life. My friends, this is the blessed life. This is the picture that Jesus has given is the blessed life. It's not the tangible, it's not the trinkets. I'm not against things. But that's, that's, that's not it, my friends. That's not it. You know what's it? It's knowing him. That's what's it. 
is knowing him. Is his life in us. See, that's, that's really what I want the conclusion of the book of my life, the last chapter I want it to be titled, He Knew Him. He knew God. Not in a, a way of, of uh, because people, I've said this in our conversations, the people that scare me the most on the earth are the people who think they have God all figured out. Those people scare me. So I'm not talking about that kind of, I, I had God all figured out. No, it's that I knew God and, and he knew me. That's the kind of knowing. And that's what Jesus was talking about is that Thomas did not let that failing, that doubt, be the end of his story. His story was one of a brilliant ending. His story was a man of faith. A man who went on and carried out the commission, the mandate that God had put upon his life. That was Thomas's story. Okay? Let's go over to John chapter 21. This is the account of, of Peter. This is Jesus reveals himself again. The disciples by the sea of Tiberias. Remember, Peter, after all of this, Peter says, oh, I'm going to go fishing. And the other said, oh, we'll go with you. So they're fishing. Jesus shows up, has a little campfire going, says, did you catch anything? You know, all this stuff. That, so they come and they sit down. And, and uh, how would you like to have Jesus fix your salmon? I bet there was a glaze on there, Micah, that would just make your mouth water. Can you imagine that? Say, what was, what, tell me the recipe, Jesus. Oh, it's heavenly. It's heavenly. Or I, I, I imagine Jesus starting a fire and just goes, fire. <laughs> you know, fish cook. <laughs> you know, not having to measure, not even having to turn it, you know. Anyway. It's where my mind works, kind of morbid sometimes, but nevertheless. So they're there, and and, and then Peter and Jesus have this this time alone, and you've heard the account, you know, three times. Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Most scholars will say, and and I think there's credence to it, that the reason he asked him three times is because Peter denied him three times. So he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Even You can even pick up on some of Peter's nature. Well, bless God, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus was inferring to him was that the importance of your life, Peter, has not been on your actions and what you do, but on your love for me. See, in over 25 years of pastoring, one of the things that I know that I know that I know, there's just some things you get to know, is that people don't struggle with the fact of, do I love God? 
They struggle with the fact, does God really love me? That's what people struggle with. Does God really love me? I know the Bible says it, but as John said in his epistle, 1 John 4, is to know and believe the love that God has for us. Do you know and believe that God loves you? That's powerful. And it's at that point, my friends, that when you know and believe that that God loves you is the place that you begin really being you. It's the place of authenticity. It's the place where you quit playing games and posing and the facades. It's the place where you begin to love yourself is and when you get to that place it becomes the place where you begin to bear the greatest fruit for the kingdom of God so when I see people and they're struggling with bearing fruit in their lives I always go back to the love issue do you really know and believe God loves you because, see, we have this perception of God that God interacts with us like we interact with one another, which is primarily emotional. So, Justin. Justin and I are friends, you know, good friends, but Justin does something that ticks me off. Now, he would never do that, but he doesn't. And so my, my response, my reaction to him is, well, Anything to do with him? The guy cheated me. He lied to me. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. And so what happens? I begin to say, see, we think that's how God interacts with us. But God does not interact with us based upon emotions. God has emotions. The Bible says that God cries, he weeps, he laughs, he gets angry. It says all things God has those expressions and characteristics of emotion, but the God interacts with us according to covenant, not emotions. That's why the Bible says things like, He will never leave you nor forsake you. What is it? Those are covenant words. If we come to Him and confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is that? That is covenant expression. God is a covenant God. And see, understanding that and knowing that God loves us and that he, he interacts with us according to this covenant, what it says that God will not go against his word. If he is, in Numbers 23 says he's a liar. And God's not a liar. So God will never go against his covenant. So that's how I know that if God says that he loves me, it's a covenant love, then I know that no matter what I do, as long as my life is, has good intentions, as long as it's not intentionally, I'm just going to live my life like a crazy heathen. But if I know that if I miss it, I know that if I stumble, that what? God, God isn't saying, well, jerk Mike messed up. No. God's always right there to say what? I forgive you and I love you. And see, this was the revelation that he was giving Peter. 
Peter, you need to understand that my actions, my interactions, my involvement with you, my relationship with you, wasn't based on your failing me three times. Peter, I died for you. Because I loved you. I died for you. When you failed me three times, I still died for you. You know, as a young believer, when I first, not long after I got saved, I stumbled across this portion of Scripture in Romans chapter 5 that says this, verse 8, Herein is the love of God manifested, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. And that Scripture just blew me away. Because it took me back to the times that I mocked and ridiculed and denied Christianity in Jesus. See, so really, I'll just use me, I wasn't too much unlike Peter. But that September in 1979 when I dropped to my knees in the living room of my grandfather's home and prayed this crude, crude prayer. Jesus met me there. He met me there with love and forgiveness. And I'd never seen this before. I mean, I've read this portion of Scripture many times. I never, just recently I was reading in verse 19. So verse 18, it talks, he tells Peter, he says, this is how you're, you're, basically your life is going to end up as a martyr. And you need to understand that that martyrdom is, is, is going to bring glory to God. In other words, he said, Peter, one of failings and, 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 you know, and denial, but your life is going to bring glory to me. In the end, and then he says, what to Peter in verse 19? Somebody read it. You got verse 19 there again? He says, follow me. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I was like, yes. That's what Jesus is saying to us today. No matter how much you may look at your life and say, well, I missed the mark here, and I did this and everything. But Jesus is saying his words to us today is follow me. Those were the words that Peter began with following Jesus. And then he went through all those crazy... But what did Jesus do? Jesus said, follow me. Meaning what? He was recommissioning his life. He had never changed his heart or his mind about Peter. I don't know about you. What that does for me is to know that God never changes his heart or his mind or his desire for our lives. That's powerful. You may be sitting here today and you go, well, that's great, Mike. That's a great message. Maybe you don't want to say that, but... It's a great information. That's good. That's not where I'm at. That's part of the problem we have today in the churches. People come to church to hear something that they think should be for them personally, 
when the reality is when we come to church, we should be receiving things that we can take and give to those outside of church. Recently, I was speaking in a church, and, and um, I got home on a Monday. To, uh, I think it was Monday I got home, and, I, and I, uh, I checked my email, and there was an email from a lady in that church. And she said, you wouldn't believe what happened, your message yesterday that you spoke. She goes, um, when I got to work today, one of my coworkers were struggling with the very thing that you talked about, and I was able to share with them the words that you gave us. See, so much of the many times what it is, it's that, that we receive, why? So that we can go give. So whenever you come to church, come with the anticipation, I'm going to get something that I can give. See, we become too much consumers. If it's not for us, then we shut down. Shame on us. Shame on us. How stingy and self-centered is that? Always be intent to get something. Because the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Peter goes on in his life to be a great giver. Who are the two people we talk the most about in the New Testament other than Jesus? Typically Paul and Peter. They were significant individuals in taking the gospel into the world. So Jesus' invitation, his resurrection, his resurrected invitation to us is to either come back or come to the community of faith even in our failure. See, we have to give people a place who have failed to encounter Jesus. I'm glad I was given a place in my failure to encounter Jesus. So tonight's message, I'm going to be talking about really abiding and connecting and walking with, with the Lord and the, and the power, the power that can becomes resonant in our life, determined by the depth and the intent of our walk with God. And the connectivity that we have that as we walk with God, we just be and the outflow of the life of God that begins to just bring transformation to people's lives and the power of that. We have to give people a place. We have to be, give them a, a place that they know is safe to come in their failures. You know, I found in pastoring that most people, you know why they quit coming to church? Because they have failure in their life. And they're afraid that if they come, people will know about it and condemn them for their failures. Rather than becoming known as a place that love overcomes failure. Love overcomes failure. Amen? So, just celebrated Easter, and if we're not 
careful. Easter weekend's over, we turn to our locked doors, our fear, our doubt, our guilt, our disbelief. When Jesus said, no, there is this resurrection life to be lived. There's this great story you can overcome. It's not, you don't have to live your life in hopelessness and defeat. But I have come to give life and life abundantly. Amen? That's the power of it and the joy of it. Jesus said this. He said, come walk with me, work with me, and watch how I do it. Walk with me, work with me, and watch how I do it. That's all I'm doing today is walking with him, working with him, and watching how he's doing it. It's amazing. It's amazing how many lives we can touch. How many people we can help. How many people we can help encourage. Give direction. Give wisdom. Give hope. Give life. I'll close with this. I would do this. I want everybody to close close your eyes. I just want you to listen to the words. Just listen to the words. Suddenly the air was filled with straight and strange and sweet perfume. Light that came from everywhere drove shadows from the room. Jesus stood before me with his arms held open wide and I fell down on my knees and just clung to him and cried. He raised me to my feet as I looked into his eyes. Love was shining out from him like sunlight from the skies. Guilt and my confusion disappeared in sweet release, and every fear I'd ever had just melted into peace. I love those words. Those are the lyrics to a song written many, many years ago. John, Don Francisco, he's alive. My friends, he's alive. He is alive. And that is my declaration to you, is he is alive. And if he is alive, then we should be alive unto the world. Amen. Amen. Stand with me this morning. Jesus, we stand here this this morning in this place of gathering, a community of worship, representation of the kingdom of God. That's really what we are, as a as evidence of the kingdom of God. My prayer this morning is that in the busyness of our lives, sometimes we we really forget a lot of, of who we are and what your desire for us to be. And it's not just 
on Sunday morning. It's, it's Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Thursday morning and Friday morning and so on and so forth. It's just life. It's who we are. It's, we live this life out of this resurrection evidence. The world is looking. The world is searching. And many of them are saying, is this is it real? Is it? Was this just a story? Was this just a fiction? Was this just a fable? But the reality of your resurrection power will be undeniably evident as we live it out. And so my prayer today is that we would live this out. We would think about being bearers of hope, bearers of forgiveness, about having a powerful ending about being those who, who will overcome failures and keep walking, keep pressing, keep reaching, keep speaking, keep touching. That's what I want our lives to be. That's my prayer this morning, in that, that, that we would be like those two guys in the road to Emmaus, that our hearts would burn within us because we've been touched by Jesus and his resurrection power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, Pastor Mike.